I would like to call your attention once more to the teaching in the Epistle to the Romans that gives us the right to sing that kind of hymn. It's in the 8th chapter, reading again verses 28, 29, and 30. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine it to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestine it, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now we are continuing our study of this great statement. This statement, let me remind you again, and I propose to go on reminding you of this as long as we are dealing with this passage, statement which is primarily designed to give comfort and assurance and certainty of salvation to God's people. We are not dealing with a theological textbook here. We are dealing with a pastoral letter. And the whole object and intent of this statement is to give us the highest form of assurance of salvation that it is possible for Christian people to have. Now then, it's all based ultimately upon this eternal purpose of God. That's the background to everything. God's purpose with respect to his people. And we've reached the stage now at which we are considering the means or the methods by which God makes this purpose effectual and real in the case of his people. That's what we are dealing with. And we have found that there are five steps. The first is foreknowledge. And uh, the uh, second is predestination. The third is calling. The fourth is justification. And the fifth is glorification. Now, I shall have occasion to point out later how interesting it is that the Apostle has select selected those particular aspects of the matter and has not mentioned certain others which nevertheless are a part of our salvation, and we shall see why that is the case. But now we are dealing with the five steps that the Apostle does mention, and I suggested that it's important that we should realize that they're arranged in a very interesting manner. In the middle, you get the calling. On the one side of the calling, you have the foreknowledge and the predestination. On the other side of the calling, you have the justification and the glorification. Everything comes to a focus, as it were, in the calling. But now we are looking at the first two. We rarely finished our study of the first one last Friday night. Uh, for whom he did foreknow. That's the first step in God's great purpose. It's, his purpose is that certain people, a certain body of people, are to be brought to final glorification to be conformed to the image of his Son, that Christ may be glorified in that way. Now then, the first thing that God did in the carrying out of that purpose was that he foreknew certain people. And let me sum up the conclusion at which we arrived last Friday night. It comes to this, that um, this means foreordination, foreordained. I considered the five uses of this word 
which are found with respect to God himself in the New Testament. It means that God has set his love upon these people in a very particular and definite way. He knows these people as he doesn't know others. They are obviously a special people. These are the people who love God. All people do not love God. We are only dealing here with those who love God because they alone are the ones who are the called according to his purpose. So what we are told is that God has set his love in a very special and unique manner upon these people who ultimately come to love him and who are ultimately going to be glorified and like his own son. So that if you prefer other words, you can use them. You can say that he chose them. You can say that he elected them. All these terms mean exactly the same thing. And that is why you will find in the scriptures that they are not at all infrequently used interchangeably. The term predestination and foreknowledge are used interchangeably. Foreknowledge and choosing, foreknowledge and election are used interchangeably. Very well, there was our conclusion with regard to that great word and the key, as I suggested to all the others, that great term, foreknowledge. Now, let me remind you of this again at this point. We are not teaching that the understanding of this doctrine is essential to salvation. I'm not saying that. You can be a saved Christian without understanding this doctrine. There is a difference between salvation and assurance of salvation. This is concerned about assurance of salvation. You can be a Christian without uh, truly receiving this in your mind and understanding. It means, I would suggest, that you are a defective Christian, that your understanding isn't clear, but it is not essential to salvation. We must never say that. There is only one thing essential to salvation, and that is that we trust utterly and absolutely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect work on our behalf. Nowhere in the scripture are you told that you have to believe this before you can be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What this teaches us is how you ever come to believe in him, which is a different thing. Now let's bear that in mind, lest there be any confusion. Furthermore, let me remind you of this. At the moment, I am simply giving you an exposition of the term. I am not going beyond that for the time being. I hope later to deal with some of the difficulties that arise in people's minds because of what is taught here. But I haven't come to that yet. Uh, it's very difficult to hold yourself in, isn't it? There are people who are already asking me questions. Be patient. Wait a bit. It may be that when you've heard the full exposition of all the terms, your questions will be answered partly. So hold yourself back. Say, but now I don't... You mustn't say that. Listen to the exposition first. We're all well aware of all the difficulties and the problems. But give yourself a chance. Try and hold your prejudices in reserve. Pray for an open mind. Let's try to understand what the apostle is teaching. You may say at the end you don't agree with him very well. That's your matter. But at any rate, let's try to discover what the apostle Paul is teaching. Now that's all I'm trying to do at the moment. But as I say, God willing, I shall try also to deal with difficulties. I'm not here, I'm not even called to be an advocate of, even of this truth as such. I'm here to expound the scriptures and to preach the gospel. But it is my duty to 
make the truth as plain and as clear as I can. But I mustn't, and I thank God I don't think of myself as just a man trying to prove that he's right. My business is to present the truth to you. And I trust we all pray together that we may be kept humble, we may be kept from a sinful spirit of contention, and that our one consuming desire always shall be to know God better and to love him more truly and to enter into the truth that he has been pleased to reveal to us as fully as we can. As long as we are in that mood and in that state of spirit, well then I'm sure that nothing can result but blessing. I refuse to deal with this matter in a controversial manner. I'm concerned about the exposition of the truth only. Very well, then. these are matters that are inscrutable. I'm not standing here to say that I understand these things, who can understand them in that ultimate sense. I'm not here to claim that I understand them, but I am here to say that I believe them, and my task is to expand them. Very well. Well, now then, I say we've dealt with this first great word, foreknow, whom he did foreknow. Remember those other uses of the word that I put before you. And we came to that conclusion that as it's translated by these authorized translators in 1 Peter 1.20, foreordained, it should be translated in the same way everywhere else. It's the only meaning that is adequate to its usage. It doesn't, cannot mean that God is just aware of people because he's aware of everything. It means this special, peculiar, selective setting of his love and his affection upon these particular people who become Christians. Now then, let's see how that goes on. What we go on to consider will cast still more light upon what we've already done. The next term, therefore, is the word predestinate. Now, there's very little difficulty about this word. This is really comparatively simple. It follows directly, of course, from the first whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. That was step number one. Well, having therefore done that, having got them into his mind and heart, having selected them, what does he do? Well, he now predestinates them. What does this mean? Well, it means simply to designate beforehand. But as it is a very interesting word, let me just open it out a little. The word that was actually used by the apostle, the Greek word, is, is, is a compound word. The pro means what we've got here in the pre. It simply means beforehand. But it's the other part that's interesting. Horizo, which means this. It's precisely the word from which our word horizon comes. Horizon. Now, what, is, what, what do you mean when you talk about an horizon? You mean this. The horizon is that which marks off and separates what we can see from what we can't see. We can see things that are within the horizon. You look round, say you're on a boat in mid-Atlantic, you look all round and the limit of what you see is always the horizon. It marks off, I say, what you can see from what you can't see. That's the business of the horizon, as it were. It sets a limit. 
Everything within the limit is in one category. Everything beyond that limit is in another category. Well, the word that is used here and translated predestinate just means that. Now, God, uh, having foreknown these people, puts them within a given horizon. He puts them in a certain circle. He puts them within a certain limit. Now, that's the meaning of the term. Or if you look at it the other way around, it means that he has uh, not only marked them out for something, but he has marked out something for them. That's what it really means, and no more than that. He has predestinated for them. He has marked them out for this particular purpose and this particular end and object. Or if you like, he has mapped out a particular destiny for them. Now, there's a very good exposition of this in the first epistle of Peter, in the second chapter, and in the ninth verse. Here, you see, Peter, in his way, is really saying the same thing. He is reminding us now of what we are as Christians. And he says, you are a chosen generation. That's your foreknowledge, you see. A chosen generation. Well, what, what for? Well, we have become a, a royal priesthood, or if you prefer it, a kingdom of priests. This is a part of what he has predestinated us for. We become a kingdom of priests, or a royal priesthood. Then another way of describing it is that we've become a holy nation. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament was a holy nation. Though she was one of the nations, she was a separate nation, a special nation, a holy nation. A holy nation. But then here's the term, a peculiar people, which means a people for as a peculiar possession of God. These people are his peculiar possession. God owns everything. God owns all people. God owns the universe. Yes, but these people are his special and peculiar possession. In other words, he puts a, a ring round them, as it were. He's, he's mapped out a certain destiny for them. There are endless analogies that suggest themselves. If you've ever known anything about sheep farming, you will have seen a shepherd or the owner of the sheep doing something like this. He's got a great flock of sheep, thousands perhaps, but now a time comes when he decides that he's going to sell some and keep others. So a great day comes when he goes out with his dogs and he selects out these that he's going to keep for breeding purposes and so on. And having taken them out of the great flock, he puts them into a pen or into a fold on their own. That's the kind of thing that's said in our text tonight and in 1 Peter 2, 9. That's the meaning of predestination. Now, you see, there's no difficulty about that. All we are told by this term is that these people whom God has foreknown he is now destining for this ultimate thing that he's got in his mind for them. He's put a, a ring round them, yes, but he's also put a ring round what's going to happen to them. And what is that? Well, we've already dealt with it. Uh, he uh, also did predestinate. What for? Well, that uh, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. He's called them out, he selected them, and he has now decided, this is his determination, that they are ultimately to be brought to that goal, to that final position. And all this term tells us is that uh, that is the goal which God has 
marked out for us. He's mapped it out. He's circumscribed it. He's put an horizon around it. And it is only these people who are ever to arrive in that circle where these things are ultimately going to take place. Well, now that's all that really can be said about the word predestinate. Uh, aren't you rather surprised? Predestination, great fight of the There's no problem there. You see, the, the word, the great word, the difficult word is the foreknowledge. Predestination is, is simply a description for us of uh, the destiny that God has determined and decided upon for these people whom he has foreknown. Very well, that's predestination. So we move on to our third term, which is this. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, you see the links in the chain, them he also called. Now then, here is another very important and crucial word. I've already reminded you of the place which it occupies in the list of five terms. We've already met the term, of course. We have already met it in particular in verse 28, when we saw that the second description of a Christian is that he is one who is called according to the purpose of God. And uh, in dealing with it there, we merely introduced the matter, but we did emphasize this, that it means effectually called. I trust we're all clear about this. There are two types of call. There is a general call given by the gospel, but that's given to everybody. God, says Paul in preaching at Athens, commandeth all men everywhere to repent. A free offer of salvation is made to the whole world, everywhere. That's the general call. The gospel is to be preached to all creatures, everywhere. A general call, in terms of the gospel, goes out everywhere and to all. But of course, it cannot mean that here. And it cannot mean that here because we are obviously dealing with a certain special people, the people who have come to love God. And everybody doesn't love God. Alas, there are many people in the world tonight who have heard the gospel call many times, but they don't love God. But we are here only dealing with the people who do love God. Very well then, so you see, it isn't a mere general call. There's something in addition, and that is, it is a call that has become effectual. What we are seeing is this. There are two people listening to the same call. One becomes a Christian, the other doesn't. We say of the Christian that he's received an effectual call. It's led to something. He has become a Christian. The other hasn't. It wasn't effectual in his case. Now, what we are told here is that God, uh, to these people whom he's foreknown and whom he's predestinated for that ultimate destiny, he then proceeded to call them in this effectual manner. You see, obviously, that it is at this point that this great purpose of God becomes actually linked to us and becomes effectual in our particular cases. 
That leads me to make this comment, uh, to ask a question, if you like. Why is it that he introduces it at this point? Why does the call come in the middle? Why does it come, for instance, before justification? And the answer is this. That though all these things, as we've been emphasizing, have happened in the mind of God, and did happen in the mind of God before the very foundation of the world, Justification only becomes operative and actual in time. Now, the foreordination is something in the mind of God. The predestination is something in the mind of God. With respect to us, yes, but it doesn't touch us. But when you come to the call, you are touching us. This is something that happens to us. And likewise, of course, with justification. And you always notice in the scripture that justification is always connected with faith and belief. Justification by faith. Justification, in other words, by belief. We are never declared to be just and justified without believing. Now, we've already seen that, of course, many times in this epistle already. We've had it, for instance, in the first chapter in verse 17. Therein, says Paul, referring to the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That is the thing, the peculiar message of the gospel. It's so different from the law, which had come to mean to most people a justification by works. He keeps on in the first three chapters exposing that utterly false teaching. And he says, no, no, we are justified by faith and by faith alone. So you get it, for instance, in um, the third chapter. He puts the same thing very plainly and very clearly in verses 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Then in verse 26, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of whom? Well, of him that believeth in Jesus. You see, it's always connected with faith. There in verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, without the deeds of the law, and so on. Now, here is an interesting and important point. That is why the apostle puts in the calling at this point. It's got to come in before you can deal with and mention the term justification. Justification is always connected with faith and with belief. So that clearly before the apostle says that God in this great purpose has justified us, he's got to introduce the thing that brings us to faith and to belief. And so he introduces this great term calling. So that, if you like, you can translate it like this. This is its meaning. Whom uh, he predestinated, then he also called to believe. Or, if you like, those whom he uh, predestinated, then he also called to the exercise of faith, or called to faith. Now then, what does this mean? Well, you notice again that the emphasis is upon God. It is God who calls. 
whom he predestinated them, he also called. And what he's saying is this, that in the outworking of this great purpose with regard to these people whom he foreknew and whom he has predestinated to this particular glory, the next thing he did was to call them. In other words, the emphasis I'm reminding you is on God. It isn't our faith that justifies us. We are not saved because we believe, otherwise we would be doing it. Faith is but the instrument that God uses in pro pronouncing our justification. But it is something that he himself brings into being. He justifies those who have faith and those who believe. But the whole problem is what brings them to that belief. Now, this is the crux, again, in many ways, of the whole argument. It follows, of course, by a logical necessity from the statement about foreknowledge. You remember how in Ephesians 2, the apostle puts it like this in verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. His argument is that it's not of works, lest any man should burst. Now then, let's have a look at this together. This is obviously a very vital and essential part of the great argument that the Apostle is using here. He wants us to see that our ultimate and final salvation is absolutely guaranteed. And it's guaranteed because it is the purpose of God with respect to us. And God has seen that it must come to pass because he's ordained every single step in this process that is going to bring us to that ultimate glorification. And one of the steps is this calling. What does it mean? Well, it means this. That God causes the word of the gospel which is preached to all creatures to come to these people whom is foreknown with power, the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, that's why I read to you just now that statement in 1 Corinthians 2, which of course deals with this. He says that his faith, that his preaching was not with enticing words of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And all along he goes on to say in that chapter, that no human reason can ever receive this, but it is the Spirit who reveals it. It's his whole argument in the entire chapter, as you must have observed, that the natural man can't, but the Spirit hath revealed them. God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. Very well, the word, he says, this is the call, that the word comes to these people in the power of the Spirit. Listen to him saying it again in 1 Thessalonians 1, five. For our gospel, he says, came not unto you in word only. It did come in word, but not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and with much assurance. It's exactly the same thing. You see, it came as a word to everybody, to those who didn't believe as well as those who did believe. It comes as a word universally, generally. But it comes with power in the Holy Ghost and with much assurance. To whom? Well, to them, to those who become members of the church of Thessalonica. He's not talking about everybody in Thessalonica. He's now writing to the church. 
And he says, to you it came, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. What does it mean? Well, it means this. The word comes with such power through the Holy Ghost that it quickens us. It awakens us. It brings us to life. Now, if it didn't do that, nobody would ever believe it. Were it not for this power that comes in the call, the power that comes with the Holy Spirit, nobody would ever believe the gospel at all. On what grounds do I say that? Well, I say that on the grounds of what we've already seen in the seventh verse of this very eighth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. Well, let me remind you, you read this. He says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Now, this is the apostle's statement. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It isn't just that it doesn't believe, it's an enmity against God. Is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. There's the natural men, there's the carnal mind, at enmity against God, not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. We've already had it in our epistle. But let me give you some other statements of this. Take our Lord's own statement in John 3.19. This, he says, is the condemnation. That light is come or has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The light has come in Jesus Christ, in his life and death and resurrection, in his teaching, in his everything. The light has come. Why is the world in darkness? The answer is that men loved darkness. It isn't merely that they don't believe. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Now, here are, there are two reasons, do you see, why I say that if this gospel didn't come in the power of the Holy Ghost, nobody would believe it. Nobody at all. We are all born by nature in this carnal state. We are all by nature enemies of God. We are all by nature, as we've seen, come short of the glory of God. The whole world lieth guilty before God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We've seen all that in chapter 3. But then our Lord puts it in another way. He says this in Matthew 18:3. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's got to be a radical change. Otherwise, nothing can happen at all. He says it again, you remember, to Nicodemus. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. Can't see it. Impossible. A rebirth is essential. A new beginning. He's got to be born of the Spirit. He's got to be born from above. It must happen. There is no hope. It's repeated twice over in that statement to Nicodemus. Then we've seen it again this evening in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural men receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, 
neither can he know them because they are spiritually deserved. Now, that's a categorical statement. The natural men, and we're all natural by birth, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. Neither can he know them. He can't know them as, as long as he's natural. Why? Well, they're spiritually discerned. He's got to become spiritual before he can receive them. There's a further statement which justifies my saying that if the gospel didn't come in this effectual manner, in the power of the Spirit, that nobody would ever believe it. But to these people it comes in this effectual manner. Take another one. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Listen to that, where the apostle again puts it in a slightly different manner, but it's the same statement. If our gospel be hid, he says in verse 3, it is hid to them that are lost. Verse 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. They're blinded by the devil, and he's more powerful than any man. He doesn't allow them to believe. And you need a power that is great enough to undo the blinding action of the devil before any man can ever believe. Or, if you like, a final statement of it. It's in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the cause of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were the children of wrath, even as others. That's what we all were. Why aren't we there now? Why are not the members of the church at Ephesus still there? Oh, the answer is, hath you quicken. Without the quickening, they'd still be there. So that you see, in that same epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5, 14, when he's contrasting those who are Christians, who become Christians with those who are still in the darkness and bondage of paganism, he says, wherefore he saith, awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee life. This call that comes to the dead puts life into them, that's the quickening, and they're enabled to believe the gospel. Well, now there are some statements which justify my statement that unless this call were an effectual one, that nobody would believe it. Do you know, my friends, the amazing thing tonight is that there's a single Christian in the whole world. That's the astounding thing. The amazing thing is not that most people don't believe it. The amazing thing is that anybody believes it. For we were all by nature, natural men, at enmity against God, regarding all concerning him as foolishness, dead in trespasses and sins. Very well. What this term therefore means is this. What God has predestined for these people whom he has foreknown would never come to pass in a single instance were it not that God in his infinite love and mercy quickened us and awakened us by his Spirit in this way. What the Holy Spirit does is to operate upon our souls. And what he does there is to put in a new principle of life. He puts in a new disposition. He changes us from being natural to being spiritual. And as the result of this, 
we begin to see the truth more than that we desire the truth. And that which we formerly regarded as foolishness, we now regarded as the most glorious thing of every of everything. That which we regarded as offensive nonsense, we now glory in and delight in and wish to know more and more. Now, that's how the Spirit does this. That's the meaning of effectual call. But doesn't this mean that a man's will is forced to somebody? Nothing of the sort. The will is never forced. What happens is this. That the Holy Spirit, by putting this new disposition within us and this new ability, enables us to appreciate the truth. As I say, it used to be foolishness, but suddenly we find ourselves seeing there's something in it, something wonderful, and because we see what it is, we want it, we will it, we desire it. The important thing is not the will itself, it's that which governs and controls the will. The will is merely a kind of executive faculty. The will is always determined by something else. It was determined by the devil, but now the Holy Spirit reveals these things to and we desire it. No man's ever saved against his will. You're not browbeaten into salvation. No, no, but you're given such a view of it and such... You want it with the whole of your being. You who formerly rejected it and regarded it as folly, now see its glory and embrace it with fullness of your will. That is how the call becomes effectual. It's not a forcing or a coercing of the will, but it is making a man will and desire that which he formerly hated and rejected. But this is the thing the apostle is emphasizing here. It is God that brings this to pass. If we were left as we are, we'd none of us desire it. We would all reject it. We would all say that it's foolishness. We would still be in that carnal state in which we hate God. Unless the call is made effectual, not a single human being would ever have believed this gospel. God has to make it effectual. Otherwise, his own purpose would never really come into operation. And his whole purpose would be a gigantic and an eternal failure. But God, having purposed it, sees that it does become effective and efficacious. Those whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, and them whom he did predestinate, them he also called, in an effectual and in a certain manner. Now, there's the exposition. Let me give you some supporting statements in the scripture to show you how this is taught everywhere else. Go, for instance, to the Gospel according to John. In addition to what I've already quoted, consider John 6, 44. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. He was arguing there with the unbelieving Pharisees, you remember. And that's what he says, it's all right. You are where you are because you've not been drawn. No man come, can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And then he adds immediately, and if, I am, if a man is drawn unto me by the Father, I will raise that man up at the last day. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. He will, it'll happen at the last day. There's one. Take another. Take an interesting statement which you find in Acts 13, 48. 
This is Paul again preaching, you remember, at Antioch of Pisidia. He preached the same gospel to everybody. Some of them believed it and some didn't. Some rejected it, some persecuted, some went away furious. But this is the comment. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Nobody else believed. The only people who believed were the people who had been ordained to eternal life, whom he predestinated, them he also called effectively. They'd been ordained to eternal life, so they believed. Nobody else did. Same thing exactly. Now, it's a very interesting word that is used there for ordained in Acts 13.48. It's not the same word precisely as we have in our text, but it has the same meaning. There are a number of words that are used for exactly the same meaning. So the New English Bible translates that, as many as were marked out for, marked out for eternal life, believed. All right, that's a good way of putting it. And what is being said is this, you see, that if they had not been marked out for eternal life, they never would have believed at all. In other words, they were effectually called. Take another one. Take Acts 16.14. The first real preaching of the gospel in Europe by Paul the Apostle at Philippi. The women's prayer meeting outside the city wall by the river, you remember, on the Sunday afternoon. He sat down among them and began to speak the word of the Lord to them. This is what I read in Acts 16.14. There was a woman called Lydia, a seller of purple from Thyatira, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. You notice the order? The Lord opened her heart, so she attended to the things that were spoken by Paul. If the Lord hadn't opened her heart, she wouldn't have attended. Whose heart the Lord opened that, with the result that she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul, and she believed the gospel. But then let me go back a little bit in Acts to the 11th chapter and the 18th verse. Peter has got himself into trouble. And he's got himself into trouble in order because he's baptized certain Gentiles. He says they're Christians, so I baptized them. And there he is up in Jerusalem on trial. The Jews say, but you shouldn't have done this. These people are uncircumcised. What right have you to bring Gentiles into the Christian church? What right have you to give Christian baptism? Peter gave his explanation. It was this. He said, the Holy Ghost came on them as it did on us at the beginning. So who was I that I could withhold water from them? If God had marked them out by giving them the gift of the Spirit, to me it's enough, says Peter. It's a proof that they're Christians. This is what happened. After he'd spoken these words, we read this. When they heard these things, they held their peace. These Jews who couldn't understand this, and glorified God, saying that then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. But what an interesting way to put it. You say, I thought a man repented at any rate. I thought repentance was entirely the action of men. But this is how they put it. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted or given repentance unto life. Granted life-giving repentance. It is God who grants repentance. Even repentance is a gift. No man would ever repent were it not for the effectual call of God. And then my last quotation is this one, which we've already had occasion to quote out of the second epistle to Timothy, 
the first chapter in the ninth verse, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's it. It is an effectual calling. It is a holy calling. It's got nothing to do with our actions. It is entirely of the grace of God. There I've tried to give you some scriptures, negative and positive. Positive assertions of it, other statements which explain why this is quite inevitable. If God didn't make this call effectual for these people whom he's marked out, even they wouldn't believe. This is the way in which he guarantees their salvation. He sends it to them in such an effectual manner by the Spirit that this is the thing that they now desire above everything else. Let me, as I shut the Bible, put this to you in a picture. Don't you see it all in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul? There he is going down from Jerusalem to Damascus, breathing out threatenings and slaughter, regarding Christ as a blasphemer, hating Christians, rejecting with contumely and scorn this Christian message. Never did a man regard it as such unutterable foolishness as Saul of Tarsus. Well, how did he ever become the Apostle Paul? Did he decide to believe in Christ? Did he decide to accept? Well, you know what happened, don't you? The Lord of glory appeared to him. He saw him in his glorified state. And immediately he believed. Immediately his will desired him. What wilt thou have me to do, Lord? Now, there it is in a perfect picture. See, the apostle didn't decide to believe. It wasn't anything he did. No, no, but when he saw him who is the truth, there was only one inevitable response. Now then, that's a picture. I say that is true. It happened to the apostle Paul. Now then, what the Holy Spirit does is in a spiritual way, he manifests Christ to us like that. And nothing short of that makes any man believe. It's a picture. It's a very wonderful picture of it. It's the same change that takes place in everybody who becomes a Christian, from Saul to Paul. That happens to every one of us who is a Christian, and it would never happen to anybody were it not that the Spirit revealed these things unto us. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him, but God hath revealed them unto us, not to everybody, but unto us. By the Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. We have received not the Spirit that is of the world, but the Spirit that is of God, that, in order that, we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. That's just another way of saying that whom he did predestinate them he also called by the Spirit in this effectual manner that leads them to faith and to belief. Very well, we've got to stop at this point for this evening, but God willing, we will go on to consider the other steps next Friday and afterwards.
Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we feel that we can say nothing unto thee and in thy holy presence, save the words of thy servant, great is the mystery of godliness. And O God, we bow and humble ourselves before it. Realizing more than ever that we are debtors to mercy alone, and of covenant mercy we sing, that we are what we are by thy grace and by that alone, that there is no room left for bursting. Him that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord, and, O Lord, we do glory in him and in thy matchless grace. And express against, again our amazement that we are in thy purpose, and that thou hast taken this trouble with us. O God, help us so to see it, that we shall be lost in wonder, love, and praise. And now may the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this our short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall be in that perfect glorified state in his glorious presence. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.